Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Good evening, everybody. My name is Nicola Channon, and I'm the director of the development team here at the State Library. It grieves me great pleasure to welcome you to the Policy Pitch, a joint initiative State Library Victoria and Grattan Institute. This seminar is held on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. I would also like to pay my respects to their elders and to the elders of other communities who may be here this evening. I'd also like to give a warm welcome to tonight's speakers, Professor Marsha Devlin, Professor Kerry Lee Krause, Andrew Norton, and Megan French. I'd also like to welcome Grattan Institute members and staff and our friends of the library. Tonight, our panel of experts will explore the reasons students might leave university without completing their degree. And they will look at what universities are doing or could be doing to ensure students get the best outcome from their higher education experience. Education is something that we hold very close to our hearts here at the library. In fact, access to education has been State Library Victoria's mission since we opened our doors in 1856. Our founder, Sir Redmond Barry, envisioned a great emporium of learning with free access to knowledge, enterprise and innovation. Entry to the library was and always has been free. All that was required was a clean pair of hands. At the time, this was a radical idea, but Barry knew the value of education and its power to transform lives. Barry was determined that it shouldn't be considered a privilege, but something that was free and accessible to all. This vision is still our mission 162 years on. The library is a place that anyone can come to, to learn and to be inspired, whether that's by attending free talks like this one, accessing our magnificent collections with the help of our knowledgeable staff, using our spectacular reading rooms to meet, research and study with others, wandering through our fabulous exhibitions for an insight into the past, coming to Playpod for early literacy and learning and so much more. Our commitment to this vision has been strong throughout our history, but as we look forward to the future and our Vision 2020 redevelopment project, we're responding to the changing needs of our community. We're rethinking what it means to be a library and how we can best ensure everyone in the community has the services they need to reach their potential. Our $88.1 million redevelopment is transforming the library, opening up 40% more public space and introducing new services and new technology. We're rethinking our spaces and services to ensure our visitors have access to the skills and knowledge they need to succeed in the years ahead. In our redevelopment is our ambitious plan for the future and our way of continuing to fulfil Redmond Barry's vision for a truly democratic, open and welcoming place of learning and discovery. In continuing with that forward-thinking theme, I'm sure everyone here is excited to explore the future of tertiary education with tonight's panel. It's my pleasure to introduce the moderator for this evening, Megan French. Megan is the marketing manager for Grattan and the producer and host of the Grattan Institute podcast. 
Her previous roles in Melbourne have focused on event management, particularly in corporate environments, as well as brand management, marketing and relationship building. Megan moved to Melbourne in 2012, following a brief stint living in Italy, and prior to this spent five years with the Department of Education Queensland, primarily as a policy officer. Please join me in welcoming Megan and our panellists. Thanks, Nicola, uh, and thanks also to the State Library of Victoria for hosting us tonight. Our partnership with the library is greatly valued by Grattan and allows us to bring events like this, like this one we're hosting tonight to you all. Um, welcome to tonight's event, Dropping Out of University, When Does It Matter and How Can It Be Reduced? Which, as Nicola mentioned, will look at the reasons students leave university without completing and what universities are doing or can do to ensure students get the best outcome from their higher education experience. We'll also talk through some of the findings from Grattan's recent report, Dropping Out, the Benefits and Costs of Trying University. And in a very timely move, the Commonwealth have also recently released their final report on improving retention, completion and success in higher education, which I'm sure will come up in discussion tonight. So now let's meet our panel. Uh, I'm joined on stage by Professor Marcia Devlin to my direct left, who is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Senior Vice-President at Victoria University in Melbourne. As an elected lifelong fellow of the Society for Research in Higher Education, uh, Marcia is inter internationally recognised for her research in tertiary education and in 2017 she published a national study on supporting the retention and success of students from low socioeconomic status. <laughs> backgrounds studying in regional locations. Here's one she prepared earlier. <laughs> uh, sitting next to Marcia is Professor Kerry Lee Krauss, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic and Professor of Higher Education at La Trobe University. At La Trobe, she provides strategic leadership to enhance the quality of learning and teaching and the student experience. And as a Fellow of the International Society for Research in Higher Education, she's internationally recognised for her research on the contemporary undergraduate student experience. Finally, I have with me my colleague, Grattan's Higher Education Program Director, Andrew Norton. Andrew is the author and co-author of many articles, reports and other publications on higher education issues, including the report on dropping out that we'll discuss this evening, one he prepared earlier. <laughs> you can have a report off later, okay? <laughs> In 2013-14, he was the co-author of a government-commissioned review of Australia's demand-driven student funding system, and in 2016-17, served on an expert panel advising the Australian Education Minister on higher education reform. Please join me in welcoming our panel. So we'll begin this evening with a detailed discussion from our fantastic panel for around 45 minutes, uh, followed by 20 minutes or so for you, the audience, to ask some questions that you might have. Also note, we will be recording tonight's event, um, so please be sure to wait for a microphone uh, to ask a question. Finally, if you'd like to contribute to tonight's conversation outside of question time, you can do so on Twitter using the hashtag policypitch and the handles at GrattanInst and at library underscore Vic. All right, on with the show. Uh, let's start with some basics. Andrew, can you give us an idea what proportion of students starting their undergraduate course don't finish it? Well, it's surprisingly hard to estimate this because uh, Australia's got a quite unusual system in that we give people about four weeks, uh, basically free try before you buy, so the census date that many students will have experienced. 
And so about 10% or nearly 10% of people who accept an offer are not enrolled on the census date. So either they never go through with the enrolment or they try it for a few weeks and then they say, oh, not for me, I'm going. <laughs> so these people are never counted in the official enrolment statistics. And if they, if they were counted, uh, Australia's dropout rates could be higher than they actually are. Uh, if we just count from the census date, which is the way the government does it, probably about 25% or a bit more than that uh, won't complete within eight years. And a few more probably will complete in the subsequent years, but probably about three quarters overall complete and about 25% drop out. Right. And so who is most at risk of not completing? Kerry Lee, every year we hear about universities admitting students with low ATARs. Is that a risk factor in students not completing their degrees? It certainly is one factor, but I think we need to see it in the context of the fact that uh, uh, at this point only about one in four students actually enter higher education with an ATAR, uh, so a minority. And uh, if you look at the Grattan report that has just come out, there is uh, data to show a high correlation between ATAR and completion. However, in the federal government report that came out just last week, you can see that uh, the, the argument based on data is that um, the ATAR has a much lower explanatory value. In fact, um, Dr. Andrew Harvey at La Trobe University has done extensive research on this and it's cited in the, uh, the government report. Let me just share this with you. Um, a number of personal factors, including ATAR, but listen to this list. Low socioeconomic status, students admitted on a basis of VET qualification, mature age students, students attending part-time, those with regional status, those with indigenous background, field of study, all of those factors together account for only 12% of the total variation in retention. So you can see it's a complex suite of factors and what we also know from the research is that personal factors play such a key role in students' decision to leave university. Personal factors like um, uh, financial issues that students are facing, uh, employment commitments, health issues. So um, many of those factors are well beyond the, uh, the reach of universities in terms of uh, our ability to control them. So there's a, a, a significant question about just how best to um, measure attrition or retention, knowing that there is that complexity of factors at play. Mm. And Marcia, Kerry Lee's touched on it a little bit just there, but what influence... Stole my thunder, I think, <laughs> another way to put it, yes. Uh, what influence does social background factors have in whether students complete their courses? Well, I mean, as Kerry Lee has, <clears throat> has hinted, it's a very complex area. You can't say a student's social background will determine whether or not they're successful at university. But certainly we know students, for example, from low socioeconomic status backgrounds who have low familial experience uh, of university um, have 
greater challenges in coming to terms of what the expectations of university study are and how to meet those expectations. So we have very bizarre and peculiar practices at university. We ask students to write essays, for example. That doesn't happen anywhere else in life unless you become a writer and an essayist and there's not many of those. So, you know, that, for example, writing an essay may be something that someone hasn't done before um, and they have to learn how to do that and they have to learn how to do it in the peculiar ways that we insist on at university. And if no one in your family has been to university there's no one to ask about how to do that it can be very difficult so there are challenges like that social background can also come into play where there are financial constraints on the student um, some of the research I've done that I showed you earlier um, you know shows that some of the students at regional universities from low SES backgrounds have very complex lives and and competing priorities they are mature age students they have sometimes full-time employment commitments they have families they have children who get ill they have caring responsibilities uh, you you can't not care for your children, you can't not turn up to work, you can't not pay your mortgage, but you can step out of study. It's a kind of optional. So social background plays uh, a part, but it's hard to say if you're from this background, you're more or less likely to drop out. It's not that simple. Mm, absolutely. And Andrew, the recent report you co-authored with um, your Grattan colleagues, it's pointed specifically to part-time study being the factor that's most predicted um, to have a non-completion of a course. Can you explain why you think that's the case? I can, but f before I do that, sure. uh, there are sort of competing statistical models out here. The department did one bit of analysis, which is actually about attrition. So by attrition, they mean uh, basically here one year, not there the next. And so ours was completion over a much longer period, over eight years. So there are slightly different ways, of, well, not significantly different ways of looking at the, at the issue. Uh, also a different model. So the model that apartment used can only sort of at best explain a certain percentage of the variation in outcomes between students. So we think that our model is better, of course, but uh, <laughs> uh, others will probably decide whether that is true or not. That said, I don't disagree with the broad arguments that I'm hearing from the other panel members, but we do think that ATAR is very important. And the reason for that is it's really picking up on both, I think, underlying academic ability uh, and kind of organisational factors, which mean that people have a better capacity to actually do the work required. So we actually think this is quite predictive. And in our view, low ATAR students are at significant risk of not completing compared to high ATAR students. But the biggest single factor we got was really part-time study. Uh, and what we found was that the numbers are actually worse than the numbers published by the department on this because what the department does is they look at your, at your study status the year you enrol. So if you enrolled part-time in first year, they look at how you go. What we found was a lot of students who start part-time actually go full-time at a later point. And of those who actually stay part-time continuously through our eight years, uh, less than 30% are likely to complete a degree. So in our, in our analysis, part-time study is extremely, or continuous part-time study is extremely risky. And we think this is probably overwhelming because the part-time students have got the kinds of things we're talking about. They've got a lot of other things going on in their lives. The reason they're studying part-time is not they're people of leisure and who want to do it slowly. Uh, it's because they've got jobs, because they've got kids, and all these things make it hard to actually put in the hours and the concentration required to succeed in higher education. Well, thank you very much, everyone. That's given us a great picture of who is likely to leave university without completing.
Um, but I'm wondering, at the end of the day, does not completing always matter? Uh, Marcia, given that there will always be some students who won't complete for a variety of reasons, do you think policymakers are too focused on attrition rates? I mean, my concern would be that attempts to bring rates down could actually backfire and lead to overly conservative admissions practices. Is that possible? Absolutely. <clears throat> I think we'll start to see that happen if it hasn't started already. Um, look, I think it is very important to be focused on retention. Um, Everything a university can do within their means to encourage a student to stay and finish their qualification is better for the student, is better for the university, is better for the communities the students go and work in after they complete their degree. There's no doubt about that. So, so that, that focus is welcome. I think what needs to happen is there needs to be a more nuanced understanding of why attrition happens and what, and Kerry Lee alluded to it before, what is within a university's control and what is not. Uh, my research has looked very closely at that and it can probably be divided up into three areas. One that universities can, can influence, one that is related to personal factors that, that universities have no control over, and the third one is kind of in the middle is around the policy space and what might happen there. Um, there is no doubt uh, that one of the reasons the elite universities are very good at retention is that they're very good at exclusion. They make sure the students who go there are already uh, educationally advantaged and socially advantaged in the main. There are some exceptions to the second part, but all the students who go to elite universities by and large have high ATARs. Uh, I agree with what Andrew said about high ATARs, but as Kerry Lee pointed out, only one in four students are admitted to university on the basis of an ATAR. So three quarters of the students we're talking about go in on other admission basis. But there is no doubt that admission practices will begin to change, and that will mean a whole lot of people miss out on going to university, a whole lot of people who will be 75% of whom will be successful. So how do you know which of the students with the risk factors will make it despite the obstacles and challenges and which ones will not? You don't. So uh, excluding people is a very dangerous way to go. So I think the uh, focus on admissions is welcome, but a more nuanced approach to it that can't go on statistics or if you've got that factor or this factor, you're, you're out or you're in, uh, needs to happen. That's very easy for me to sit here and say and very difficult to do in practice. Mm. And Andrew, um, at what point in a student's journey have you found that most attrition happens? Well, about, as I said before, about 10% yeah. don't even make it to the census date. Uh, and this is kind of one of the intellectual changes I think we had while we are doing this project, that we started off with the view that probably there were people doing, you know, taking silly risks uh, in going to university. And probably that is still true with some of the part-time students who don't actually you know, fully understand how much work is required. But actually, it is really, really hard to pick uh, which low ATAR student is going to be in sort of the 50-something percent who does actually finish and which one will be in the 40-something percent who, who won't finish. And so where we ended up with this is that actually you should take a punt on them, but what you really need to do is make sure you're watching carefully what happens. Uh, and try and intervene early uh, to put them back on track if that is possible, or if they are not enjoying it, not engaged or failing badly, to try and get them out of the university as soon as possible before they incur a help debt or incur more help debt than is actually needed. And so at some level, trying to get people out before that first census date is really important. For example, if they're simply not turning up or they're very disengaged, if they can leave before the first census date, this has basically been a costless experiment for them. They'll never be charged for their student contributions. 
So I think that is you know, a very important thing that we need to do, and some unis are, are pretty good at doing that. Of those who actually do make it to the, the first census date, uh, about a third are gone by second semester. So they leave some time during first semester. And again, we're putting this in the category of, I've gone to university, I've tried it, uh, I've left, I've probably spent less than $5,000 in total. In terms of deciding something which could be very, very important for your future life, that's probably not a crazy amount of money and time to spend to work out whether university is for you or not. So there, you could almost say that you should start the attrition statistics from the end of first semester when people are trying to decide. About half of people uh, who are gonna go, go by the end of first year. So again, probably in that category of still trying it out. But then we get significant minorities of people who leave after two, three, four, even more years without completing. And they're the people you've got to really worry about who have potentially spent tens of thousands of dollars, put in huge amounts of effort, and haven't got the qualification they sought. Mm. So then what can universities be doing to address this issue? Kerry Lee, I know you've advised the government on the importance of transparency of higher education admissions. Do you think that helping prospective students to make better higher education choices would in fact reduce attrition? Absolutely. <laughs> and why wouldn't I? But I think uh, admissions transparency is but one part of um, an important uh, landscape. Um, the admissions transparency was very much about making sure that there was consistent um, information, core information that all higher education providers had uh, available to prospective students, not just universities but uh, uh, higher education providers in the non-university category. Um, and, and further to that, uh, consistency of nomenclature so that um, across states and territories uh, and across institutions there was consistency. Trying to make sure that the least advantaged uh, potential student, um, those who were first in their family to even consider crossing a university threshold, those without the social and cultural capital were able to at least start on the same footing as, uh, as their peers in uh, understanding the the way in to uh, universities. But as we know, admissions information is just one part of the process. And it's interesting, we're talking a lot about what universities do. I'm interested in the flip side of that, and that is how we um, build persistence and resilience among students to make sure that there is uh, not only what universities do, but what students do and what communities do. So in addition to admissions information, um, course advising pre-entry, critically important. The, uh, uh, the government report that has just come out uh, highlights the importance of careers advising, but not just for school students. It also talks about the importance of advising for mature age students, recognising that there is an increasing uh, number of, of uh, students who are enrolling part-time as mature age students. So I, I think it, you know the, the suite of information to advise students and services to advise students before they enter 
I think those are important things. And then once they get into the university, what the university does, um, I think, needs to be seen in the context of uh, equally important what the student does and how the student and the community uh, respond and how we support them with the skills that they need to persist or to make wise decisions about uh, exiting. Uh, and that includes um, alternative qualifications, and no doubt we'll come to that, but I, I think, you know, I'm very much in favour of uh, thinking about the ecosystem of, uh, of education, not just in universities, but what part does a VET offering play, uh, what part does industry-based learning play. So I, I think this really does need to be a more expansive conversation than just what do universities do to keep students. Andrew? Yeah, I think the VET point is very, very important. Clearly, it's very topical. Labor's putting up a big post-secondary review if they, if they win office in the next 12 months or so. We have got some interesting uh, data in the, in the dropping out report about people who've dropped out but do have a vocational qualification. And they tend to earn significantly more than people who have the same qualification but never went to university which is possibly suggesting that they are you know, towards the top of the ability pool of, say, the people who do a vocational diploma or who do a certificate three or four uh, through TAFE. And they're kind of the leaders of their occupations. And a lot of them will be earning significantly more than someone who's sort of down the bottom of the bachelor degree uh, earnings distribution. So one of my concerns is that for example, some of the low ATAR students, probably particularly the men who earn more in vocational education than, than women, uh, they go down to, into higher ed, they may not complete, or they will complete and be stuck in a job that doesn't require their bachelor degree. Whereas if they went down the vocational path, got a diploma or certificate three or four, uh, they could actually be earning a lot more, be much more satisfied with their lives. And so I think a lot of people here and overseas, big report in England out the last couple of days about this same issue, uh, that we've made higher ed sort of the, the top thing to do, and we haven't thought enough about whether that's actually the right choice for some of the individuals involved. Mm. Which, which is why, um, just to play devil's advocate, we were talking earlier about the, the terminology used in the report dropping out. I think we need to be very careful about the way in which we characterise um, student actions and decisions and behaviour, because students may depart a university setting, but uh, they may do that quite consciously and uh, succeed in a vocational education setting or an industry setting. So I think, you know, part of this really important national conversation that we've opened up is about, you know, how do we characterise uh, the issue of um, retention in an educational ecosystem? And I think dropping out is something we should really challenge, um, particularly for students, for example, in low socioeconomic um, background contexts where they're fighting the odds just to get through the front door of an educational, you know, further education institution. To then be labelled as having dropped out is a real stigma. And, you know, I think there is a responsibility for us to think about how we support those students in, uh, in transitioning uh, to whatever it is that they, they move to. And uh, when we come to the issue of how we measure attrition, 
uh, and how what alternatives there are from a policy perspective, my question would be what does success look like? Is success only to be measured by the number of students a university keeps? I don't think so. Can I spot to the language yeah. issue? Because that's obviously in our title. <laughs> so we had a little, lot of internal discussions about this. So, you know, obviously dropping out does have some negative connotations, but alternatives like attrition or non-completion are really describing institution or system level outcomes. They're not describing the experience the student is going through or the decision they're making to go. And so we just, even though it has got these negative connotations, we found that this was language which described what is going on much more clearly to most people than the, the available alternatives. But the report itself, you know, I think often presents a quite positive view of this. So we've, uh, we've got a, some survey results in there which show that many people who, who actually leave without completing have no regrets, and about 40% of them would do it all again despite knowing they're not going to finish. So really what that is showing is that they believe that the benefits outweighed the costs, even though there were some costs. And I think this is sort of really, even though we've used the negative language in the, in the title, the actual research shows that this is often a much more positive experience uh, than either we assume in saying attrition is bad or the negative connotations imply around the term dropping out. Kerrilee, mm. I'm just curious, um, since you brought up the, the sort of broader story of higher education rather than just universities, um, when it comes to something like part-time, which has obviously been shown to be a real issue and there are a lot of contributing factors which aren't really controllable, let's say, and we're seeing that essentially going part-time and staying part-time really does severely inhibit your chances of completion. Is that true, do you think, of the other pathways in higher education? Is part-time perhaps a better option when you're, when you're completing something that's not you know, a university degree? Look, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all, quite frankly, and I think it comes back to the earlier point about the scaffolding and the support provided for individuals depending on their circumstances. And that's part of the, the wicked problem in a way, you know, that we've, we have to figure out uh, how do we create a tertiary system, a tertiary ecosystem, if you like, uh, that actually um, supports students, no matter what their background, uh, who want to study further and, uh, and, and is sufficiently flexible to accommodate and support students who are wanting to or need to go part-time in their study. I would worry very much if someone took away from this conversation that part-time study um, isn't something to pursue because you're more likely to drop out. I think it's important to know um, the, the risks involved, but I think that equally should be a signal to anyone who is, is contemplating part-time, you know, what do I need to do? What advice do I need to seek? What sorts of strategies should I be putting in place to make sure that I'm managing that risk? So it should certainly not be a deterrent to someone, you know, considering part-time vocational education, university, study, uh, you know, working full-time, um, uh, upskilling, if you like. I, I think there are, we have to be flexible, and, and we are seeing that already in, uh, in multiple modes of delivery in, uh, in universities in particular. Mm. Yeah, bringing it back to universities, Marcia, I, um, I'd ask you, even though 
some students do leave soon after commencing and others go on to study for years before then uh, dropping out. Partially <laughs> completing. Partially completing. Um, uh, what else are universities doing currently to help students successfully complete their course, even if they are part-time and, and perhaps should be doing if they aren't already? I'll just start with what they could be doing in addition, and then I'll read out a list of things that universities do. For all of us who work in universities, hello Beverly, hello Siobhan, hello. Um, you know, we do a lot, so I would like to sort of put on the record some of the things we do. But what, one of the things I got from the report um, is the idea of actually, and it never occurred to me before, and I've worked in universities for 30 years, so that's a bit of a worry, but actually with the part-time study, it's not possible to finish some courses within the time frame available to finish a course if you're part-time the whole time, if you're very part-time. So universities need to keep a closer eye on that. So I actually think that's a fantastic recommendation and I'm certainly taking that on board. I'll just briefly explain that. So most courses, all courses probably have maximum times uh, to completion. If you don't complete, then you'll go to the unsatisfactory progress committee. But uh, most universities don't prominently say that there is a maximum time. And as far as I can tell, if you enrol in too few subjects to stay on track to finish, they don't tell you till you get to point where it's too late to actually fix it. Yeah. We, we do have flexibility with the maximum time. We all sort of get a bit soft about enforcing that, I have to say. But, you know, for the students' benefit, if they just need another semester a year. But some of the things that universities do do, and Kerry Lee mentioned pre-enrolment advising and, and all the sort of aspects of that, enabling and preparatory programs. So most universities run something like that or have a partner who does that for them. Concurrent, Can you just explain that a little bit? So enabling programs would be if somebody hadn't met the requirements to enter the bachelor degree. They might be able to do a six or 12 month program prior to uh, starting officially at university to um, imp improve their academic or learning skills or English language skills, for example. So enabling and preparatory programs um, provide a pathway. Um, Kerry Lee also mentioned VET and universities, most I think, if not all, have either uh, dual sectors like my own or have arrangements with VET colleges so that they're uh, pathways through so students can build on diplomas and lower level qualifications into a degree. Concurrent academic support, counselling services, options to change enrolment internally with credit. So people sometimes realise they're in the wrong program, they thought they wanted to study economics, they get there, it's boring, they want to do psychology, <laughs> I, I suggest everyone should do that. And uh, <laughs> as, the, as the representative for Grattan up here I have to... Uh... <laughs> psychology is much more interesting and you know you can understand if people want to change but they're not advantage when they change, they actually take some of the credit with them when they get recognition of their prior learning. All universities do that. Scholarships and bursaries for those, um, and I think we should stop using the word bursaries because what student understands what that means, I don't even know what that word means. What no, that means. It means free money, so I think we just call it all just free money. That. You know, if you need, and students will often tell you they don't need much, they need $500. $500, I'd give, I'd give them to them myself if I knew, just to finish their qualification because they've just got to pay their rent and they've just got to pay a bill and they've just got to get some food for the next few weeks and they'll get through. It's not a lot. Equipment loan schemes. Some students can't afford to buy equipment that they need to do a placement or to do their, their program. Uh, financial assistance I've mentioned. Student-friendly approaches to administration. So we didn't used to have those and we're all striving now to have friendly people at the desk, on the phone, on the web to answer students' queries, not 
push them off somewhere else, you know, and actually get those transactions completed. Monitoring and responding to at-risk sub-cohorts, so Andrew alluded to that, where we actually look at who might be at greater risk of dropping out. If they're not engaging, if they're not in the learning management system, we have students employ the staff to ring them up and ask them how you're going and do you need anything and refer them to services. Mentoring from experienced students. I mean, for people who work in universities, these are all business as usual, but, but others may not know about them. Transition programs, senior appointments charged with responsibility for all of this, and a whole lot of money internally allocated to making sure all these things happen. So we do a lot, but as Kerry Lee and I keep referring to, there are some things that are just not within a university's control. You can do all of that, and still there will be partial completers. I'm going to use that from now on every time I see Andrew, <laughs> who have partially completed their qualification, and as Andrew's pointed out, they, they don't see it as a they don't think of themselves as dropouts. Andrew Harvey at uh, La Trobe has a lovely term about partial alumni, which I've taken on. Well, they're people who have studied at their organisation, yeah, may well have a, a, a connection to the university. Yep. Have a sense of belonging there. And, and would be delighted yeah. to be contacted. And it's and been successful just to go for a period of time. And I think that's part of the challenge. How do we measure the value add and the learning gain of a partial completion? Uh, and how do we get over this um, very traditional approach to measuring retention? I think there's a challenge that we have as a sector on this. In future, I'll say I've got a partially complete PhD rather than being a PhD dropout. Well, isn't that better? That's great. <laughs> we need to talk. You need to re -enroll. We might have to do some retroactive renaming. <laughs> um, you've very nicely led me into my next section there, Marcia, talking about um, there are things that universities can't do. So, so let's shift focus a little then to a policy perspective and let's talk about what policy options should be considered. I'll, I'll throw this open to the whole panel. Um, the government's planning to withhold funding from universities that don't meet performance criteria, um, uh, one of which is likely to be attrition. What are your views on this idea? I'll start with you, Marcia. I'm very worried about this idea because um, it will reinforce what's already going on. Unless the measure is from the basis where the university started. So elite universities have very low attrition, around 10% or thereabouts, and non-traditional universities that have non-traditional student cohorts have uh, up to around 30% mark. If you impose a number that everyone has to meet, that's impossible, and all of those that are good at exclusion and therefore good at retention will benefit, and all of those who are actually doing the heavy lifting in terms of non-traditional student cohorts uh, who often need additional support to complete or partially complete um, will be disadvantaged. So I think it has to be on the performance of the institution and that improving, in which case I wouldn't be concerned about it. I would think that's a good thing to do. It is good to focus people's attention on enabling success for students, but the way in which it's implemented and the way in which things are measured, as we've alluded to, is very important to get right. And I don't think we've had enough discussion about that yet for me to understand whether that's going to be done right. Yeah. Kerry Lee, do you have thoughts there? Look, I have no problem with universities being held accountable. Uh, I think we're held accountable on all sorts of levels. We have an external uh, regulator, TEXA, uh, on an annual basis every university reports to government on a range of things, uh, including acquittal of funds, research funds, etc. 
So on several levels, we are held accountable regardless of whether funding is withheld uh, for particular areas of, uh, of uh, performance. But let me turn to a couple of those. If, if we talk about this issue of attrition and retention as a potential um, performance-based indicator, I think already we're seeing in the Higher Ed Standards Panel report or the federal government report that uh, was released late last week, we're already seeing a recognition of the need for a new, more sophisticated approach to measuring attrition. So you'll see reference in there in the recommendation to using the adjusted attrition figure. And what that refers to is recognition of the fact that students may have moved from one university to another. We're also seeing uh, reference to, um, in the work of, uh, again, uh, Andrew Harvey, who's doing some, some terrific work in this regard, we're seeing work on re-recruitment of students. So in Andrew's um, uh, recent work, and it's cited in the HESP report, around half of students who withdraw from higher education actually return to the sector within eight years, according to his research. Now, how do we factor that into performance-based funding. That really requires recognition of the long-haul game, that is higher education outcomes, rather than a very short-term perspective on year on year. And while we're talking about long-haul, um, at the moment, uh, the focus on employability outcomes, looking at full-time employment, uh, three months out, uh, I would suggest that we need to look more flexibly at um, not just three months, but three years out. What is the impact? What is the gain of graduates as a result of being engaged in university education? And how do we recognize and take account of that long haul game? That's a challenge. There's no easy answer to that, especially for a government who um, understandably is wanting to make sure we've got evidence now of, of performance. So, you know, I, I think um, it's a balance uh, between year on year accountability and a, a recognition of uh, some of those long haul factors. But I do think we're starting to see, certainly we're seeing recognition of the need for a more nuanced and sophisticated approach to measuring attrition, and I think there is more to come. Andrew, what are your thoughts on the yeah. government's plan? So I think we do have this issue with the ambiguity of the indicator that sometimes actually attriting, or whatever we want to call it, uh, is the right outcome, and therefore the university should not be given a perverse incentive uh, to persuade someone to stay when really it's in their best interest to go. So I think you've got that basic risk of perverse outcomes. But I think there's sort of there's also a higher level issue with these programs that uh, this is not legislated. Uh, it was created on a whim late last year. It could be abolished on a whim in some future year, uh, which is exactly what's happened to pre previous performance funding schemes. So my view would be is uh, if I was in the shoes of our Deputy Vice-Chancellors here, uh, the program will probably be abolished before you get your money. Uh, so don't do anything you weren't planning to do anyway. No, and you know, at the heart of it is uh, what is our ethical 
obligation as a uh, as a provider of higher education to the students and to the communities that they represent. And uh, while uh, we're, we're on this topic, let me just say that, um, you know, in, in looking at performance-based funding measures and, and holding institutions accountable, it's so critically important to take account of the context in which they're working. My own university is one that has a significant regional representation. And uh, in all of the um, examples that Marcy has cited of, of programs offered to students, let's be very sure about the fact that uh, any funding that goes to university must recognise the fact that there is there are differential needs of students uh, according to uh, you know the support provided, and that has to be recognised um, in terms of funding. Hmm. We will throw open to the audience very shortly um, for some questions, so get your thinking caps on on what you'd like to ask. But I'd just like to finish the discussion part of this evening uh, by asking what could potentially be a broad question, but maybe not. Um, what should governments be doing instead, or as well as, um, and what else could they do as opposed to just this current plan? This is recorded, right? It is, it is recorded, I'll Marcia, let Andrew go yes. first. We can edit it out if we need to. <laughs> Andrew, I will start with so you. So one thing we suggest in our report, which is uh, very, very simple, which is that uh, we did a survey, in fact, uh, one of our audience did the survey here, uh, of people to work out what they knew about the census date. And only about 40% of the students in this survey actually understood what the census date was and its implications. Uh, many of them confused it with some other important date, like the last day to change subjects or things like that. Mm -hmm. And so many people probably sail past the census date uh, and incur a debt unnecessarily. <laughs> Uh, the census date has its origins in you know, the, the need of the government and universities to know how many students there are a census. But really, that's pretty irrelevant to a student. This is the day you've got to pay or where you incur a liability. And so we think just a very simple thing like changing the name of the census date to payment day or something like that uh, will just let people know that if you want to make a decision to drop out, do it now uh, and you won't be charged. And miraculously, the university's figures will improve as well uh, because the student who was always going to drop out will never appear in their official stats. So to me, extremely simple change of language uh, would probably save students a lot of money and improve the, what, student, what universities look like, even though it wouldn't actually change uh, the long-term outcomes. Kerry Lee, the thoughts on what the government can be doing? Many things, but I'll... Uh, I'll Ones I'll that you just, can say in front of a live audience I'll that's being recorded. Refer, well, you know, I think it's a, um, it's a complex set of issues that goes well beyond the discussion about um, uh, retention and attrition. And uh, the reason I say that is that we're seeing in universities increasing um, flexibility in terms of modes of delivery, um, micro-credentialing, block mode uh, at, at Victoria University. So, you know, how do we make sure that we're incentivising that innovation in higher ed provision? And in fact, one of the reasons that universities are doing that is that it, actually that's meeting the need of a certain cohort of students. So how do we make sure that that is supported and that we have sufficiently um, nuanced ways of, of um, assessing outcomes in, uh, in d those different modes of delivery? The other comment that I would make is that I, I think the uh, proposal to have 
the individual student identifier is a, a significant leap forward. I think what that does is to again recognise the educational ecosystem uh, and being able to recognise the value of um, possibly one semester in a university and a transfer to a, a vocational education offering, uh, that being a success uh, and that being recognised as a value add in the live lives of one or two students or a cohort of students that may have come to university, benefited greatly from that first semester and then realised actually I'm better off in X. How do we track those students? How do we recognise the significant contribution of the university uh, in that as an outcome? So, you know, um, moving away from sole reliance on the bachelor's program and graduation and employment at the end of three or four years to a more nuanced approach to assessing outcomes. I don't have an answer for how one does that, but I do think there needs to be um, significant work done on that and a willingness on the part of government to work with the sector on coming up with some of those um, uh, alternatives. Thanks. Marcia? I've got five. Have we oh, got time? Sure, we do. We do have time. My report that I prepared earlier. Oh, that, so that report that it's you've actually got, got a section on policy. <laughs> I yes, should have no. bought copies. Um, so the five areas, on a more serious note, the first is ensuring financial stability for students. So it's a very small amount of money, and if you saw it as an investment, if students had appropriate income support while they were studying, more, more of them would stay at university, and that's certainly the case, and Kerry Lee would agree, in regional areas, but not only in regional areas. That uh, romantic idea of doing it tough as a student and you know, sort of getting by a little bit of money is not in tune with what actually goes on in real students' lives. They are suffering significant financial hardship and if that could be addressed less fewer of them would drop out the second one uh, Kerry Lee's mentioned uh, defining measuring and monitoring attrition to align with the realities of student lives the student identifier would be helpful uh, the old days when many of the politicians went to university you went to an elite university you studied for three or four years or five if you did law most of them did law and then you went and got a job in politics that's not the reality of most students lives so Defining and measuring attrition in an appropriate way would be a good policy move forward. Um, Kerry Lee also mentioned valuing stage and micro qualifications. So the gold standard is a three-year bachelor's degree. Why is that the case? The economy is changing. The world is moving very quickly. Uh, why does it have to be? And uh, Beverly's nodding, and she's done some work in this area. So let's all read Beverly's report. Did you bring a copy? No. Um, too bad. Uh, the fourth one, leveraging existing regional and rural infrastructure. So my research was in the regional areas, but the same thing could apply. Some students don't have an internet connection and have to drive a really long way to a library or a university campus in order to access the internet, um, you know, bring on the broadband or whatever. There is some really interesting work going on among the regional universities in terms of using library infrastructure, because there are public libraries everywhere, so the library here would like to hear that. Uh, that's a really good idea. Why can't we do more of that? And the government could coordinate that. And finally, regional school and all school investment because um, everyone goes to school and the more they can do at school to prepare for tertiary education, whether it's VET or higher ed or micro-credentials or industry qualifications, the better. So five easy things to do. Great. I have just much. one other. It would be remiss of me not to mention this one and that is the importance of recognising, rewarding, funding and sharing good practice. There used to be an office for learning and teaching that did that, uh, that built communities of practice nationally. 
Um, there is reference to the importance of sharing good practice on a website uh, in the, um, the, the HESP report that came out last week. Um, I think there is significant value in looking at how we do share, incentivise and recognise those good practices. Um, the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education is, is performing a key function in that regard at the moment, but I think there's more that could be done uh, and uh, I'll leave it there. Great. Andrew, one more to add? Yeah, just uh, having made a small suggestion before, a big one now, which Great. is bring back the demand-driven system. Yes. Uh, that was the best performance funding system we ever had. If you did a good job, students were retained and you got the money uh, with no complex bureaucratic formulas. Uh, it encouraged innovation. You know, in my view, Victoria University is doing really interesting things because the demand-driven system forced them into a market position where they just had to do something. And we've seen now a very successful innovation with the, with the block model of teaching. So I think it, it facilitates innovation and it gives universities largely the right incentives to retain students. Thank you. Okay, time to open up to the floor. So have we got a few hands up, some questions around? Yep, just down, just here. Yep, thanks. Thank you for a um, great discussion panel. Um, my name is Sam Rapisada. I'm a careers counsellor at Wesley College, Melbourne. Uh, I've got the uh, task of um, helping 210 of my year 12 students next term to uh, figure out what they want to do in 2019. Can I ask the panel, how can my profession help to, um, I won't say fix the problem because I don't see it as a problem personally, but I'll leave it at that. Kerry Lee? I'm very happy to, uh, to take that one, Sam. Thank you for your question. In fact, I think there has been in the last three years um, a, a growing national recognition of the critical importance of careers advising. Uh, and that is um, specifically referenced in the work on admissions transparency. And, uh, and it's also referenced in the Higher Ed Standards Panel report that came out last week on uh, attrition. Specifically, it talks about the importance of making sure that there is recognition of the pivotal importance of careers advice that's sound, and, uh, and it also recognises that it's a challenge for careers advisors who often have other jobs uh, and are trying to do this, uh, this role as well as others. But I, I think to your point and to the theme that I've been um, promoting, and that is that um, we must recognise that there is a, a an ecosystem here of um, of school and uh, further education, community-based education, and uh, in the the HESP report, it makes reference to the fact that it's not just school students who benefit from and need that careers advice; it's also mature-age students. So, actually, in favour of expanding um, and building on the work. Uh, that's been done by careers advisors. So, uh, you know, that partnership is critical. We cannot just focus on universities and close the gate and say school's over now, let's focus on what we do at unis. We have to work together to, to make sure that we benefit the students. Marcia? I have another answer. Just send them all to Victoria University because <laughs> our first year student retention is up significantly, our first year student satisfaction is up significantly, our first year student view of the quality of teaching is up significantly, pass rates are up significantly, the standards are improving. Okay. Yes, down, question down the front here. You guys, sorry, my name is Justy, Justin. Um, you guys 
kind of touched on this earlier, one of the biggest reasons that students do drop out is financial viability. There's a push overseas in Germany and all that. They made their universities freeze. What do you think about that? Andrew, free uh, universities? So I'd say direct student income support is the critical thing here, that fees you can defer uh, aren't affecting your life right now. Uh, they will in the future, but not right now. But it's the more immediate needs. There's almost no work being done on student income support, as far as I can tell. Uh, I've been just trying to collate some of the statistics today. That is actually really hard to do in itself, so we're lacking the most basic information. But I can tell you that you couldn't live on the amounts of money you can get should you be entitled, but less than 200,000 higher ed students are actually getting uh, youth allowance, so that's only a small percentage of the, the entire enrolment population. So clearly it is a problem, and I'm sure there are people leaving just because they've got to get a job to survive. There are, but there's research to back that up. Um, before you were born, probably, university used to be free in this country. Um, I, I don't briefly, think, brief. briefly. I don't. I don't see us going back that way. I mean, I, I just don't see that that's a, a policy future for this country, which is unfortunate. But that's Andrew. If you look at this around the world, basically what happens is that the higher ed funding system integrates with broader tax and welfare systems. Uh, that in countries with relatively high taxes, you get free education, health, etc. In countries with relatively low taxes, like Australia, you get some private payments. Uh, to me, what matters is the coherence of the system more than which one it is, because you've got good systems that work quite well in different countries. But, but you've got odd things like education is free in Sweden, for example, but student income support is mostly loans. And so people in Sweden can end up with more debt than people in Australia, because even though the education was free, uh, they've actually borrowed a lot for their student income support. And I saw a presentation from someone from Sweden, and they are quite ruthless at chasing these debts, you know, internationally and things like that. So they've got a kind of unusual hybrid system. Mm. Another question? Thank you, colleagues. Great panel, as expected. I'd like to change the conversation slightly, if I could. I notice in most of the reports that we have, and coming from the government and Grattan, we always focus on bachelor students which is understandable, particularly because the government is concerned about Commonwealth-supported places, return on public investment and so on. Could we talk for a moment, or how can we change the conversation to talk about postgraduate attrition? The reason I ask this is because beyond bachelors, we know that there is an increasing need to upskill, reskill, return to learn, to earn, and so on. And it's going to be very much in our interest as a nation to make sure our citizens, domestic, plus people who come here for international education, do get good value from the educational experience that is fit for purpose. They are incentivised to complete. And I wondered, Andrew, if you have done any research on the postgraduate partial completion rate. <laughs> and um, if there's any work being done around that, because I, I'm often a little bit disappointed to see sort of no attention to that at all. I will just mention also that these people, of course, are all mature age. If they're domestic students, they're very likely to be studying online, one unit at a time. They often live in the country, regional and so on. They're all over the place. So how can we make that a national conversation as well? Andrew, post-grad attrition. Yeah. Um, 
the embarrassing answer is no, that we've not done any work on this. And as far as I know, nobody else has either. Uh, definitely needs to be done. But one point I would make is that I think attrition in postgraduate is even more ambiguous than it is in undergraduate in that I think it's much more likely they will strategically do one, two or three subjects uh, to get particular skills that they want uh, without feeling the need to either spend the time or money getting a full qualification. And I think one big difference here is that often if you look at, say, the ABS surveys, people are doing it to you know, improve their skills in their current job. Uh, the employer can directly observe whether you have these skills or not. You don't need this separate credential in a way that uh, an undergraduate who's never had a full-time job before needs it to prove to any employer that they potentially have some skills. So I think we'd need to do lots of other survey research of the postgraduates who do leave, do leave early to see if this was a decision that they made uh, full well knowing that they never wanted a degree or whether this is a decision they regret. Even in our undergraduate analysis, like we were trying to examine what we sort of think might be fake attrition. Um, so there are people in the, in the analysis who already have a degree, do one or two subjects and then leave. And it's quite possible that they are saying, well, I just uh, want to do these one or two subjects and then they're leaving quite happily. I, the reason we looked into this is I actually had an anecdotal example of a friend who uh, felt the need to improve his maths knowledge, or despite already having a master's degree in something else, uh, turned up at a university seeking to do a not-for-degree subject and was told that he would, could get a help place if he enrolled in the full degree and then dropped out. Um, so he made a perfectly sensible decision to take the financially favourable <laughs> option in order to do these subjects, uh, but never had any intention of finishing another degree. And I suspect in post-grad, uh, there'll be much larger numbers of those. Another question out there in the audience? Uh, we need to make a distinction between coursework courses and, and, research. And, and research degrees. I think that's a very big difference, and they're very Absolutely. different populations, yes. and they're very big dif different Absolutely. issues between them. Another question? Tonight there have been very many really interesting insights into universities, but I was wondering if there'd be any differences in improving attrition rates or helping build complete for TAFEs, including with our wonderful dual sector institutes like Vic Uni, Vic Uni Polytechnic. That's, that's a bit of a curly one actually, um, partly because, and I'm just, this is thought process going on in my head, we had academic board last week and I asked about um, attrition, retention in the TAFE sector and I got a very long explanation I didn't quite understand, I've got to follow up about how difficult it is to um, measure and monitor that given, the, and people who have more vet knowledge than me are nodding their heads uh, given the continuous enrolment and the way in which that's measured. So I suspect, but I don't know, that there will be similar issues in terms of the reasons that people uh, partially complete in vet to higher ed, but there's a lot more work that needs done in that space. It hasn't been one that's had the attention that's been focused on higher ed, probably for funding and monetary reasons, but um, it's certainly an important one and it's on my radar. Great. Had a question down the front and then this one. 
Uh, Justin Bocor. Um, Andrew, you said change the name from census date to payment date and send reminders. You said that would increase attrition pre-census date. You can imagine that would. Would that hurt university finances? Uh, yes, it would. So, so interestingly, a number of universities are actively trying to get people out. Uh, university of Tasmania was one we talk about in the report. For example, they are now making sure there are assessment tasks prior to the census date. So that actually is a sort of a whole of curriculum change that you need to make. Um, they've changed from following up on these students, being the responsibility of the course coordinator, who's usually overworked, um, to having a central unit who follows up on these students uh, and encourages them to, to either either finds out what their problems are and tries to get them back on track, or if those problems can't be resolved in the time available to encourage them to, to leave. So I think this is an example of sort of ethical practice. On the other hand, it's sort of ethical practice uh, probably incentivised by the very negative publicity that UTAS got a couple of years ago over 30-something percent first-year attrition rates. So kind of the publicity probably prompted them to do something. But I think... Most universities do want to do the right thing, and it's just a matter of working out what that actually is in practice, which is why this kind of sharing of practice is a, is a very important part of it, that there's no point everyone reinventing the wheel when other universities have worked out how to do it. The other dimension to that, um, beyond just focusing on census, is making sure that students are fully aware of options uh, like um, deferment, leave of absence, and their options to um, discontinue enrolment, withdraw, re-enroll. So, you know, there's an educative element here as well um, for institutions, so it's back to what universities should and can do, but also being um, more intentional about making sure students are aware of their options um, in addition to the census date. So, you know, that's very much part of that advising framework that's so critical. And, you know, yes, there may well be financial implications, but, um, you know, uh, I think uh, there is the ethical obligation to make sure that students are well uh, uh, informed. But there is also back to that long haul game, the fact that, you know, we know that so many students, if they're well advised now and take the time out, they're more likely to return, right? They may not necessarily re-enroll to that institution. I actually don't have the figures on that, but we do know the likelihood of re-enrolling. So this is part of that long haul game, I think, that we really need to bear in mind. Yes. I note in passing that only the TAFE aspect of the vocational education sector was touched on here. But my question is for Andrew. Andrew, could you speak briefly to attrition, or maybe not as the case may be, in the non-university higher education, and maybe where there are there is passage from um, non-university providers to university providers? So our report didn't include the non-uni providers just for a very practical reason that uh, we're looking at people who started degrees between 2006 and 2008 and the data for the private providers is limited uh, back in those years. If you look at the department's numbers on the private providers, they are all over the place. 
So some of them have outstanding retention uh, and others are the worst performers <laughs> in the higher education system. So it's very hard to generalise about them. Uh, but many of these providers do actually work in a very complementary way to the public university system. That is that they are specialising in pathway colleges and often this is where uh, students will go when they didn't get a high enough ATAR to get into their desired course. Uh, they go to a college, this one at La Trobe, uh, where they will do a diploma, which is basically the same content-wise as the first year of their target course. Uh, if they do well enough, they articulate into the second year of the course. And uh, my view, that's pretty positive. The analysis we did found that people who'd done a diploma first actually had reasonable prospects uh, of completion. And I think that's a mix of uh, the people who weren't likely to complete anyway have left during the diploma and some, and some value adding. They're actually fixing some of the academic problems uh, that led them, getting, led them to get a low ATAR in the first place. So that's a very positive thing that the private sector does. Uh, in that demand-driven review that did a few years ago, one of the recommendations was to actually include diplomas in the demand-driven system because, uh, in my view, because at the time bachelor degree places were unlimited, the government supported ones, whereas diplomas were very capped, uh, students were going straight into a bachelor degree because that was the financially attractive option uh, rather than going via a diploma first, which would have been probably better for them. Another question? Yeah. Thank you, Mary Clark. Um, two of the panellists have um, raised micro-credentials and that in this new environment where this is potentially the new currency, terms like dropping out maybe have becoming increasingly old-fashioned. Um, so here's a bigger than Ben Hur question, which is against this environment we've still got um, a situation, sorry, where the government regulates traditional qualifications, where the government um, provides funding for traditional qualifications, where the government um, supports students in their studies for traditional qualifications, where measurements, as we've just talked about, dropping out, attrition, etc., relate to traditional qualifications. And here's a bigger than being heard question, what needs to change and how? Well, just what, what needs to change in what regard? What, what do you mean in terms of... How does the government... How, how should the new world be supported? To not focus on traditional To, to realise that there's a, an emergency, emerging new currency credentials that are micro, that are outside of the regulatory funding policy net. So, so in reference to micro-credentials, yeah. yeah. How do we focus? I sincerely hope the government does not try to regulate micro-credentials. Yes, yeah. I was just, can we cancel <laughs> you know, the I, question? Just yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't need to know. You know, I think we're still in the, the space where we're working out what these credentials can do. We should encourage lots of different experiments in micro-credentialing to work out what's going to work and what doesn't. However, I don't really think this is an alternative to the undergraduate bachelor degree. Like, this is a sort of a whole-of-life transition experience. It's not just getting a bit of knowledge and getting a bit of paper that says you've acquired that knowledge. 
And this is why, for example, despite the improvement in online technology, hardly any school leavers are doing purely online courses. They are going to a physical campus because they are getting something much more than just their degree and just their educational content from that experience. And so to me, a micro-credential, while it may usefully uh, identify particular skills they've got, uh, is a complement to that traditional bachelor degree and not an alternative to it. I don't know. I don't know. I'd ask Andrew, why is a degree three years long? Why, why is that the gold standard? I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but... Is that the way it's always going to be? Are our grandchildren and their grandchildren going to be doing a three-year degree in however many years it takes us to have that many children and grandchildren? I mean, really, is that it forever? And if so, why is three years and five for law and seven for medicine or whatever it is, why is that? Well, let's stick with the three years. Because it always has been. That's kind of why, yes. You sound like an old man. (laughs) That's the way it's always been. So that's the way it's always going to be. But... Really? I don't know. So Europe and the US have sort of had discussions about reducing their Mm. degree length, uh, which I think in Europe they've tried to do and meeting lots of resistance from both the universities and I think the employers who just know what this product is and are anxious about having to work out what a different product looks like. But I kind of agree. It's a a great question. But I think it's one of those path dependency things where... If we were starting from scratch, we might not do it this way, but having done it this way, it's hard to go back. It's a good question, though, because um, I think what it does is to highlight uh, the need to guard against perverse outcomes, you know, uh, and being um, seeing regulation as the answer, uh, I don't think is necessarily the case in an environment where we do want to and need to innovate and uh, and create space for experimentation in terms of um, you know d- different ways of, of credentialing so you know I, I quite like the question that sort of stretches the mind and says okay well what might this look like and and where should we not go you know or, or what should we guard against in terms of locking things down uh, and and regulating everything that moves so you know um, we we have a higher education standards framework uh, that we all sign up to uh, and there are some important principles in that in terms of uh, supporting the quality of the student experience etc so you know I, I think there are some anchor points in in um, a framework like that that actually can be applied um, in perhaps an, a non-regulated area like the the growing interest in micro credentials um, I agree with you, Andrew, that it's not necessarily going to replace um, the bachelor's degree, but I, I think time will tell. You know, I, I don't think we should rule out the possibility that uh, there are uh, new and different ways of um, curating content uh, rather than just the, the three, five, or seven-year model. So I, I think that's a good question. Thank you. Andrew? Worth, worth noting that six years ago, everyone said that MOOCs are going to put universities out of business hasn't happened so I think we might be able to squeeze in one final very short question yes just a short one um, it hasn't been mentioned as a potential factor in particularly your school leavers staying with the course choosing the right course um, gap years pro or con 
Um, do students who take a year off rather than transition straight from school make better decisions, um, come to come more prepared, or is that just uh, you know one more reason for them to goof off and you know not get with the program? Uh, I've got an anecdote on that. I don't have any data. Andrew may have proper research. Um, I've got two children. One's just finished university, and one's at university, and they've got a circle of fifty friends and probably about a quarter of them have taken a gap year, some deliberately before they went to university, some went to university and partially completed and then took a gap year, year and a half, have gone back. And my observation of all of that around, you know, dinner table conversations is it's very messy and it, it's partly maturity. I'm talking about a very small group. Um, you know, that some of them, it's partly poor planning and thinking, it's partly familial experience of both university study and careers. Sometimes there's little exposure outside what mum and dad have done. Um, and I don't think there's, it's like, you know, Kerry Lee said before, there's the one rule fits all. I think it's an individual decision. Um, the, the, when I went to university 150 years ago, it was don't take a gap year because you'll never go back. That seems to have disappeared, which is good, so that people can go. And, you know, they end up working in burger joints and horrible places and then they think, I don't really want to do this the rest of my life. Maybe I should go to university and get some skills and get a better job. So I don't know if there's any research mm. that either of you know about. Uh, certainly okay. there is evidence uh, to support what you're saying about the, the level of maturity that uh, students come back with in terms of their decision making. I think the one area to guard against, though, is the reason for the gap year. Um, we know from studies of students from low SES backgrounds who are risk averse that sometimes they will take that year off because they feel that they can't afford to go to uni. They've got to um, save up enough to pay fees up front. Uh, so that is a, a, a real concern. Um, to me, that's a very different matter to the more advantaged student who takes the year off to travel, for example. So I, I think, you know, to really ans uh, answer your question, um, one needs to look at some of the, um, the, the reasons for the decision. And importantly, what happens when they come back? And, and again, back to that question about what advice um, and support is given to students in helping them to make their decisions when they think about re-entering. Andrew, gap year, goof or good? So we didn't have direct information on our gap year analysis, but we did just compare people who started 18 compared to 19, so indicated that maybe they've taken a year off and virtually no difference in their eventual completion rates. Uh, if it is just one year, I think it's fine. I guess my concern is you get used to the money, delay, these get married, have a kid, get, you know, all these things just sort of cascade and then you'll have to go back when you're 25, study part-time, then you've got a serious risk of not completing. So that's the danger. Thank you very much. And with that, I'd like to draw tonight's event to a close. I'm sure we could keep talking for hours, but we have run out of time. Uh, thank you once again to our partner, the State Library of Victoria. Be sure to check out their What's On for all of their exciting upcoming events. Um, also, a huge thank you to our panel tonight, Marcia, Kerry Lee and Andrew. It is no small task preparing for these events, and we really appreciate you taking the time out to um, share your expertise and opinions. Finally, thanks to you, our audience, for your attention and engagement and fabulous questions tonight. Have a wonderful evening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy. 
with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate. Grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.